Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to The Mentor, I'm Mark Boris. Now you've heard me mention this to you before, but I'm someone who relies heavily on my gut instinct. If I find myself in the middle of a forked road, in other words, I'm not sure which way to go, I'll pause for a moment, think, all right, what aligns with what my gut tells me. By definition, it's your immediate understanding of something. There's no need to think it over and over again or get another opinion. You just know. Your intuition arises as a feeling within your body that only you can experience. And it's based on the accumulation of your life's experiences. So for this week, I want to take you through the five key moments taken from previous guests of The Mentor who follow their gut instinct in business. The strategies we'll cover in this episode will help you reevaluate your current approach to your business, your career, or the all-round betterment of yourself. So let's get into it. So at the end of one of these nights, me and Rich were sitting, I was cleaning up the bar, Rich was sitting, absolutely, and Rich said something like, how cool to be to create a beer brand that was in touch with the people drinking it like beer club is, or, you know, they had a vibe like beer club. And it was just one of those, oh, yeah, we should do that. We should do that. And then the next day we actually had a phone call. It's like, you know, what we were talking about last night, Do do you reckon we could do that? And we both said yes. Yeah, I reckon we could do that, even though there's nothing really in my CV that made me think I could do it um, or that I'd be a valuable shareholder or anything like that. Didn't even know where I was going to get the money from or where to start, anything. But we just said, yeah, we're going to do this. And that started us off catching up in pubs and cafes working on a bit of a business plan. And I'm sure, as you've probably spoken with many people who have written an original business plan, the business ends up looking absolutely nothing oh, like yeah, the business totally. plan. But, However, you to, but you do have to write the it's an, it's an important process. Yeah, yeah. It really is because you you it allows yourself to define what you want to be and what you're not going to be. Mm. And that's a really important starting point for, especially if you're looking for finance, which we needed to. Um, and we started circulating this business plan and – you know, you, you couldn't you couldn't access craft beer easily, like I yeah. said. But craft wasn't really were, kicking off, though, was it? Like, well, like not like it became. Not like it became because it would have been hard to get investors. I would have thought. Initially, it was tricky. It it really was tricky. So you and Rich business plan, just an idea. Bear yeah. in mind, you got a brewer. Yeah. Someone who can actually make a beer. Yep. Yeah. Did you decide what your flavor? Well, like 
what, what, what you were going for? Did you have the young Henry's um, recipe in your mind at the time? No, not not, not at that stage. No. At, at that stage, we hadn't even named it yet. Right. Okay, no name either. And then we were sitting in a cafe one time and Rich at this stage had exited Barron's and was a stay-at-home dad and he brought his one-year-old Henry to the no. meeting and... I said something along the lines of, we should call Young Henry's because he'll be the th- third shareholder. I was like, oh, Young Henry's, yeah, that's all right. Working title. And just never changed it. Just That's cool. It was just one of those things. It wasn't part of a focus group. It wasn't overly thought out. It was just this thing. It just came out. It was there. It was kind of, I don't know, it just felt nice. Never you ran with it. Yeah, we ran with it. Because the product spoke for itself at the end of the day. And now the reputation of product precedes the name and, and it gives the name gravitas so like it, it works but so so you and rich it's in there young henry's came up with the idea you started you worked out a business plan where the hell did you get your money how'd you kick it off so we i don't you don't strike me as two rich boys no no <laughs> yeah, you didn't have a whole shitload of money to throw around no right? we didn't so we we ended up getting this business plan out to a few people and mates yeah mates and they were a couple of people tapped other people on the shoulder saying, hey, there are these guys doing this. You know, know that you're into your beer, you, you should come and have a chat. And um, that led us to two guys, um, Daryl and Ian, who had come out of um, different IT companies. And then it also, once we kicked off Young Henry's, it introduced us to Dan Hampton, who's one of the other uh, owners and directors of the business. And a huge driving force in the business. He was doing sales for Little Creatures around the time of the Little Creatures buyout and chose to take a redundancy and actually at the 11th hour pulled money out of that redundancy and put it into Young Henry's and came on board as cool. head of sales. It's West Australian, was it West Australian? Yeah, Creatures? that was WA. Yeah, yeah WA yeah. guys, yeah. So you got these, these so, dudes with some dough. Yeah, well, look, they, you know what, they they had a little bit of... How much money are we talking about to put in, to kick it off? We needed 800. So someone sat down and said, you you and Richard sort of sat down and said, we need to buy this, this, this and this, we need 800 grand, is that what happened? Like or Basic, brewing, basically. brewing kits or whatever, whatever, you know, like big brewing kits. Yeah. Is that what you did? Yeah. Mostly capital items. Yeah. Yeah, and, and some inventory. And, yeah, you know, and like what... Wages. what no, wages didn't even make it into no the, the original yeah. plan, unfortunately. Um, yeah, it was things like, you know, how much is going to cost to set up the bar, how much is going to cost to set up a restaurant attached to the, oh, so to had, the brewery. Oh, like, is this about the distribution? So, or is it about selling? So you, you had the brewery, but you also had a bar to sell it. Well, that was the plan. Because you're not going to get in a pub. No, well, that, that was that was the plan. And uh, so two two family homes also had to be mortgaged so that we could borrow the rest of the cash to, to get there, right? which is an important thing to like say. parents? No, no, no. Uh, Richard, Richard and Ian. Yeah. Right. They, they had a house. Yeah. yeah. So they, you know, which is... It's a big deal. It's a pretty big deal. Like literally, when we started Young Henry's, everyone, everyone was in it deeper than they could really afford to be. Yeah. So it was, got to make it work. We had to make it work. The, the fucking it up wasn't yeah. an option. No, otherwise it'd fuck you up. Exactly. <laughs> and that's and look, that's why in the early days wages weren't even a consideration. All of us that you know started the business, we worked for the business for the first six months for free. Did you have other, other gigs, other jobs? Yeah, I worked in a bar at night. Yeah, so you're doing, you see, you kept your sort of night work instead yeah. of day work, but you kept your night job, yeah. which is your, your normal job. So, yeah. you know, my marriage managed to, survive that somehow, which was, because it was 
crazy. You know, the early days of any business, you just you basically making mistakes all over the place, and you know, tidying it up, fix it up, yeah, learn from yeah, it, backfill, start again. You know, yeah, dig a hole, run ahead of it, and you know, make sure no one behind you falls into it. So you got to keep backfilling the fucking hole. Exactly. What did you do? Did you sell out or just stay no, in? No, no, no. I owned half. Yep. And my ex-husband owned half. Yep. Um, and we had management running the business. And, um, but it's running down in value. It's running down in value and dividends aren't coming the way that they used to and all of those sorts of things. So, um, Did you bid him? Did you go and bid him then? So I, he said, no amount of money you will ever be able to buy, buy me out, ever. No amount of money. I'm, I'm like, oh, my From goodness. you. From me. Yeah. And he said, and I knew. Was he, he saying, you'll never buy me out? You'll never buy me out. Yeah. And I also knew that he'd probably prefer to put it in the ground than me have it, which is an awful thing to say. Yeah. And, um, but as it happens, a great friend of mine who I'd known for years, business friend, we'd been in, um, you know, forum groups together, entrepreneurs organization and YPO, and he'd just done his ma- a massive global exit in Europe for his business that he was running, came back to Australia, was being offered all sorts of big gigs. And I would tell him what's going on. He goes, oh, shit, come on. And I'd say, no, no, seriously. So the best thing I ever did was put David on the board of Red Balloon as my alternate because what – David being your mate from Europe. David Anderson being my mate from Europe who had a bit of time on his hands. And he went into that boardroom. And he said, oh, my God, this is such an amazing business. And he'd known it for 10 years because he'd been a friend or whatever. So he knew the journey. They are going to kill this thing. And, um, and so he set about um, acquiring Red Balloon. So David and I created a partnership called Big Red Group. Big Red Group then acquired Red Balloon. So I own 50% of Big Red Group. David owns the other 50%. Did your ex know that uh, you were part of Big Red Group when you were doing the acquisition? Two and a half years later. Yeah, so, you, And by the way, you had no obligation to disclose it. No, not at all. So he thought he was selling to David. He thought or, he was thought selling to David and a group of yeah, fir- a firm or investors, or investors and whatever. And so basically he, when he said there's no price that he would ever sell, he basically saying, I would never sell to you at any price. You. Yeah. Name you, not yeah. um, any. I'll sell to somebody else. Yeah, but not to you. Yeah, and David was wonderful and continues to be wonderful because it's one thing. It wasn't just about acquiring that business, and I think this is a really important point. It, this was not about my ego or even you know Red Balloon should survive and thrive. It was that there was such opportunity in the market that we weren't taking. So with the right business partner, which is David Anderson, and he has global vision. He's like, you know what? So many of the businesses that are marketplaces that started 10 to 15 years ago are capital poor. They're not able to get onto that state-of-the-art platforms that we're now on. What if we as, as BRG, as Big Red Group, start acquiring other businesses with new audiences? And so we rolled up- Other marketplaces. Other marketplaces. So we yep. acquired Adrenaline, acquired uh, Lime and Tonic, and we've got a bunch of other acquisitions going on. So when we came into Red Balloon, it was broken- we had to fix it. We had to transform it. What was it, the product, Broden? No, not the no. product, the people, the systems. Nothing had been done in the systems. All, my, all required money too. They'd add-ons. They'd created new sub-brands. We had to just clean it up. 
It's no different to what happened when Steve Jobs came into Apple. And I remember Steve Vamos, who was the CEO here at the time, and they had Newton and they had this and all these hangers on. And, um, And Steve just came in and said, we've got to save the mothership. And it was the same thing, we've got to save the mothership. So we set about um, transforming um, and, um, and fixing this beautiful business, giving it the capital and the trajectory that it warranted, and then started acquiring others. Was it about changing the platform, though? I mean, yeah, we had to do. A you mean, mean the, the, the interaction of how the platform worked with the, yeah, the yeah, marketplace? Because, because it was old technology yeah. on old systems, and we've gone state of the art with you know Salesforce and got all these clouds and using AI for our all of our marketing and really sophisticated uh, customer retention. So can programs. I just just for our audience' sake? I mean, if I. And correct, correct me if I'm wrong here, but are you saying that um, you needed a, a fresh injection of capital in order to build the, the, the software platform, um, but in order to build a software platform it made sense to have other – acquire other businesses which could use the platform so you had multiple brands or marketplaces using the one platform or part or that sort of one major mainstay platform. Um, the, the objective was to – to do that, you had to put more money into it. Um, so that is the reason why maybe Red Balloon was able to be saved because Red Balloon sort of bumped in with a whole lot of other brands like Adrenaline, et cetera, all of which made sense in terms of investing more capital into one big brand new platform that had much more capability and could make have a better um, interaction with the consumer because, as you say, you can start to say to the consumer, well, why don't you think about this because we know that you like that event or you like that experience. So would you now like this adrenaline experience, which is, you know, getting on a jet ski or whatever it is, a jet boat in uh, New Zealand? Is that what we're talking about? So exactly. So the Economies business, of scale. You, you've got to get economies of scale. Yep. And there's many businesses that get to, let's say, 30 or 40 million turnover, especially in the e-commerce space, and they can't break through to the next level. Yep. And the reason is just because you need infrastructure. Now, given we hadn't had growth for seven years, so how are we going to find an investment partner? So we had to have a pretty big thesis and actually we were supported by the bank and the bank has been incredible for us. And it was just, um, you know, debt that allowed us to, but we had a really, really clear thesis of how we could grow this enterprise. And what we did was look for other businesses that had also begun to tailor off, couldn't invest capital in technology, couldn't stay state of the art. And now, for instance, we have the data on pretty much what a lot of Australians are doing and we know that you might use Red Balloon to buy gifts for all of your team members, but then you're going to use Adrenaline because you've got people in town and you want to book it and go, so Adventure and Waits. Oh, actually, you're looking for a really nice private dining experience, so let's use the Lime and Tonic Bird. So one customer can be – we can serve through completely different audiences, being there at the right place at the right time when you have that particular need, and particularly using search as a function. So you're searching for something, one of our brands will come up. But we now are able to look at that real uh, footprint, which is why we've begun to par- partner with government as government wants to go out and, and stimulate the economy because we know what people are doing and we also know how to stimulate demand yeah, and that- we're very accountable. So, you know, you, you, if you haven't got the resources, you can't change the world. I was getting to arguments with chefs about it because we only had one combi oven at the time. It was a 180-seater restaurant. And opening and closing a combi oven, you lose a lot of heat and we're using the oven for lots of other things. So I was put in a position where I had to alleviate some pressure off the restaurant. I had to do something. And what I didn't tell you, 
going back many years prior to that, it was through my architecture degree, I was inspired to do something with a shipping container. There was a case study. It's actually funny. I did six and a half years or seven years at uni just to take one case study. And there was a case study where architects were transforming shipping containers into apartments for living, these high-end apartments. This was happening in, in New York, Berlin. Small houses. Tokyo. Yeah, do, do, they were doing some really cool things. And for some weird reason, it just struck a chord with me because I knew there was hundreds and thousands of these containers lying around the world just dormant. No one's doing anything with them. And so from that point on, I looked at shipping containers as a blank canvas to do something. Years passed and every time I'd see a shipping container on the back of a truck or, or at a loading dock, I go, fuck, I'm going to do something with one of those one day. But I didn't know what. Fast forward those years, we fell into the restaurants and cafes and ended up with this scenario at the restaurant where I had to alleviate pressure off the restaurant for, for the canafe. And I go, fuck, that's, that's what it's been all these years. Canafe and shipping containers. It made no sense. I'll be honest. Like, but I knew that's what it was. And so from there, I just started working, you know, on, on, on this idea. Started shopping around for a container. I was speaking to a lady that used to work for us. And um, I went to her with all these ideas. I go, I've got an idea. She goes, what now? Because my, my whole family know I'm the, the crazy creative one. I go, I'm going to transform a shipping container into a bakery. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Told her about the canafe and she knew the problem we're having at the restaurant with this dessert. So we started just putting a rough business plan together. But I started shopping around for a shipping container before I told my business partners who are my brother and my sister. Because I know if I try to tell them, they're going to try to talk me out of it. So I put myself in a position where they couldn't do that. So I bought one, this 20-foot shipping container. It was rusted. It was Kermit the Frog green. It was an ugly color. <laughs> Took photos of it, bought it. I came home one day and I, I told my family, I bought a shipping container. I showed them the photos. I thought they'd get excited. <laughs> they told me off. I go, relax. I go, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn it into a bakery. They go, what the hell do we know about bakeries? We know cafes and now restaurants and what the hell, you know, like so left the wing. I go, relax, it's not that type of bakery. They go, what do you mean? I go, we're going to be baking canafe out of it. And they knew the problem I was having at the restaurant at the time. And they knew that people really enjoyed it and it was the demand for it. So it kind of made sense to them. But my mum got excited because she thought we're going to do all these Middle Eastern sweets as well, like baklava and halal tajibin. And I go, mum, 
we're just going to be doing kanafia. She goes, what do you mean? I go, she goes, we'll do this. Because when my mum cooks, she doesn't just, as you know, like, they don't just cook one thing. No. They cook like 10 things. It takes them hours. Yeah. The prep time is Like ridiculous. you go into a Lebanese sweet shop, there's like so so much, it's all about variety. I go, mum, we're just going to be doing kanafia. She goes, what if they don't like it? I go, well, they're probably not going to come. But I knew, I had, I had faith in the dish. And so I started working on a concept and um, a friend of mine who's a mechanic down the road from the restaurant, I was telling him about the idea. I go, I bought a shipping container and I need somewhere to work on it, somewhere close by. He goes, put it in front of my workshop. I'll move some of the cars that I'm working on and you can work on it there. I go, done. I didn't even go there. Spoke to a guy who's picking it up from the, the yard, gave him the details, dropped it off. I went there the next day. There was this green shipping container sitting in front of it. And I just started working on this idea. It was just like I was excited about what I was working on. And people go, and I think people felt that. And so. So it, it was out the front of the mechanic shop? Yeah. You fitted it out yeah. there? Yeah, so I, I designed it, project manager. I got an art, a friend of mine who's a graffiti artist. He came and did all these artworks. A friend of mine's a carpenter. But mind you, the, there wasn't much to the fit out. I've got one stainless steel bench in there and an oven. And that's it. You know, the most valuable thing in, in our bakery are our people mm. who create it. Once I take the boys out at the end of the night. It's still a container. There's nothing there. Yeah. It's just a front bar with all of our ingredients, yeah. a prep bench where we do all of our prep and the conveyor oven which we bake our knaf in. And that's it. And so from inception of idea to our first opening night was, uh, was about six months from when the first the idea came to me, bought the container, designed it, built it, Opening was all happening within kind of six, all very quickly. And all these elements started coming together. And I heard something a while ago and it, and it goes, experience breeds expertise. And I really believe that because it took like all these years in this hospitality game to create this really simple concept, if that makes sense. So yeah, That's important. And I think we need to stop there for a second because, you know, a number of people come to me and say, oh, this is a great idea and uh, blah, blah, blah. But you have to have a whole lot of skills in order to execute on the great idea. I mean, and it's all about the execution, not just the idea. And But you'd been building skills up for a long, long time. Not only that, people, consumers, a community of people, um, staff, the product itself, you know, you'd refine the product into what it is today, what it is at the time of your launch. So how important do you think it was to you that you had the ability to go – to your restaurant on a every day to work and earn some income whilst you're trying to develop this other thing on the side for six months period. Like having, in other words, having a regular income and having a, a another purpose outside of the idea. Was that important to you or do you Very, think, yeah, yeah no, very important. And I think, you know, to come up with an idea, you don't have to give up what you're doing. It can be a little passion project. It can be a little side hustle. I got to a stage where my side hustle took over everything. Do you think it was a side hustle in the beginning? It was a passion project. It was just yeah. an, it was an idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I never in my wildest dreams th- thought that, just to give you an idea, we, after we launched Canafe, a year after that, we had to sell the restaurant because we couldn't, Canafe just took off. Yeah. We opened up in Melbourne as well and then plans to open up in New York, which we did. And we realised in order to flourish, we got to be all in. So, yeah, it was. It was Canafe was a side project for me. It was never... This big business. Yeah, you never expected it to become no. a giant business. No, I had, I had faith in the in the dish. I knew it tastes good. You know there was demand for it. Correct, but I didn't think it would be it would end up like this. You didn't necessarily think that it would become a destination for people. Absolutely not. And I didn't think it would be our main business out of all our businesses. 
But there's also this concept of actually your mental well-being, improving or optimizing your mental well-being because it might mean we need to work on our mental well-being as opposed to saying, oh, I've got a mental health problem. You know, it might not be a problem. It might be just something we need to work on to get better at feeling better. Absolutely. And and the, I guess the other part of well-being enhancement is there's a really strong business case in terms of performance and what we're seeing and what many small business owners would be aware of that unfortunately is we see people working very hard. They're, they're very passionate about their work. They're highly engaged, but often to the detriment of their, of their well-being. Where, so what we're trying to do is to show that you can have well-being and performance together so that um, well-being supports performance and performance should ideally support well-being. There's this thing called PERMA, positive emotions, engagement, relationships, meaning, and accomplishment. But what you want to take me through that, what does that mean? Yeah. So it's a model that was developed by Professor Martin Seligman, who really formally launched the field of positive psychology back in 1998, when he was the president of the American Psychological Association. And he recognized that, again, we need to be much more proactive and that as psychologists, we've been focusing on what's wrong with people rather than what's right. So this field has been going for 20, nearly 22 years now. And this model he published in a book called Flourish, uh, if anyone's interested in purchasing it. And so he he identified that there were these, I guess, five um, pillars, if you like, of a flourishing individual. So we use the F word a lot, Mark. <laughs> Not the F word you might know, but we call it flourishing the F word. And so someone that's flourishing is experiencing high levels of well-being and low levels of mental illness and high levels of engagement as, as well. And so he found uh, from across significant amounts of research over time that people that are flourishing uh, experience more positive emotions than negative. But that's a really important point because we're not saying it's about being happy all day, every day, and they will lock you up. I usually say if you do walk around with that big yellow, happy, smiley face. So, but they generally, someone that's flourishing is experiencing more joy, more gratitude, more awe, more elevation. And there's 10 different positive emotions that the research has found. Um, they have high levels of engagement. So they're in what's described as psychological state of flow. And I'm sure a lot of your guests have spoken about that or sports uh, athletes talk about being in the zone when you're totally absorbed in an activity. And this is what happens to be in, in my presentations and you lose track of time. So that's uh, when you're completely engaged. You're also using your strengths is what the research shows when you're highly engaged. You have a high degree of positive relationships. So not necessarily quantity, but you have what's called high quality connections. So you have very strong uh, bonds with, with people. And again, may not be many, um, but those positive relationships really support you, particularly when the going is tough. Uh, then we have meaning, uh, which is an area that's gaining a lot of popularity, particularly in workplaces, particularly with the younger generation. And again, a lot of your guests would have spoken about this. They don't just want jobs. They want to have um, you know, a calling or they want to make a difference in the world. So meaning's really important. It's one of the most important factors on our well-being. And the, the final one is A for accomplishment. So we all need to feel good at something. Not every Thing, but we need to feel like we're achieving and we're accomplishing things over time. And so those five pillars, uh, people that are flourishing tend to report high levels across those five pillars. So when I was 20 and I moved to Sydney doing PI work at my housemate, I was renting a room and the housemate said, oh, I've come and see this guy, Tony Robbins, at the Horton Pavilion in Sydney in 1997. And so I did. And I wrote down this goal 
because um, he was like, write down some goal that you think's you know impossible. And I was earning seven hundred dollars a week as a trainee investigator when I was twenty. And I thought, well, I don't know if I can make forty grand in a month, like that would be amazing. So I wrote down this goal, and then at the end of the seminar, he's like, well, now you actually have to commit. You need to do your, do the thing you wrote down. And I was like, crap. So. I went in, quit my job as a PI, and uh, and then sat in the car park at McDonald's at Parramatta and thought, what the hell am I going to do now? I need to sell one big thing to make 40 grand profit or lots of little things, and I've got no idea. And so when uh, I, I rang an old schoolmate, Steve Hannah, I rang Steve, he now worked at Muffin Break, and, uh, and I said, Steve, remember we talked about doing a tough man challenge once because they do those things in Townsend where people can like fight for money or something? I'm like, I think I'm going to do that. Like, do you want to do it with me? And he was like, no way. And so I lost my business partner in the first phone call and spent a week then going around Sydney trying to organize um, somewhere to put on this tough man challenge and um, ended up the New South Wales Boxing Federation wouldn't let me do it. Uh, but I rang the Northern Territory Boxing Association and they said, yeah, you can do whatever you want in the territory. So I got in my car with $200 left, that's all I had, drove to Darwin, ran out of money before I got there, had to go to a guy who managed the servo and asked for him to tank of fuel, all this stuff. Anyway, slept on the Esplanade in Darwin. I'd go into the Holiday Inn or the hotel on the Esplanade and unplug their swimming pool filter each night at 10 p.m. and I'd plug my phone in because it was the only way I could charge it. I'd have to get back by six in the morning. And, uh, you know, I'm going to the newspapers and telling them what I'm doing, all this over the phone. And at 20, you know, I looked like I was about 12 years old, so no one saw me. And Councilman Perkins gave me credit on beer. I'm like, I used to work at this server in Townsville, you know, good for credit. I had commercial accounts for four. I'm like trying to string it all together. And uh, so I got 415 cases of beer on, on credit. Someone told me I needed a special event liquor license. And I'm like, oh my God, this is going to cost a fortune. The Department of Fair Trading in Northern Territory, I went in there and they said, oh, it's, uh, it's $20 for a special event license. I'm like, how much beer can I sell? Like, as much as you want. So I sold, uh, you know, I don't know, 60 grand's worth of beer and, and tickets and stuff. 1,500 people turned up and um, these 16 fighters came that, out of the newspaper, they all nominated and uh, and they fought for $2,000 prize money, which I didn't have at the start of the night. So if you're going to promise a bunch of people money, 16 fighters are probably not not the best people <laughs> to promise that to. And, uh, yeah. and so, you know, I remember the DJ coming up and saying, I need $600 cash before I start playing the music. And I thought, shit, I haven't got 600 bucks yet, mate. Just, I'll see what comes in over the gate. And uh, for a while there, it looked like no one was going to come. But in the end, they did. 1,500 people came, took in $64,000 in five hours. And uh, it cost 22600 to do it. So I bought about $42,600. And um, that was all because of that goal I set at Tony Roberts. And so... I then uh, started helping out and volunteering for a little, a couple of years at the next um, seminars that were on, and um, and someone knew that I'd done a bit of work for Channel Nine on the side as a stringer and things, and so they needed the cameraman in Fiji in 2006, and the producer rang me and said, apparently you know how to operate a camera, uh, you want to come to Fiji, and uh, and so every probably every eight weeks or ten weeks I'd go somewhere in the world and film stuff, you know, we're, and, and Tony's crazy, you come up with these ideas, you know, you want to bring all these celebrities to Fiji and get monks from India and we're going to teach them how to meditate. So you have, you know, Meg Ryan and, you know, all these different people there and uh, it was just bizarre, but lots of fun. Thanks for listening to The Mentor. Audio and production is by Jess Morley and production assistants, Jonathan Leondis. 